Um, okay, we are in the book of Jonah. We are in chapter 3. Last week, we took a lot of time. We're kind of all over the place last week. We, we took a lot of time building context. I'm not going to do that this week. Um, so if, if, you did, if you weren't here and some of this seems a little bit out of place, I recommend you go back, listen to that, and, and kind of tie that together. Uh, that said, I do want to um, explain a couple things before we, we get into chapter 3. Um, last week, we, we identified, or we, I guess I could say we reimagined the idea of universal salvation as, as the scriptures uh, teach them. Oftentimes, the idea of salvation to us is reduced to a, a time, a choice, a decision, um, something that happens on a very individual level. And what we talked about last week is the Jewish understanding of salvation was much thicker. It was much richer, had more texture to it. And it, and it was more the idea that God was redeeming everything. Even, even some of the choices we make, God is redeeming it all. Um, and this is the way the Jews saw salvation, not just an individual invite or, or decision that was, was made. And, he's, and the way the Jews pictured this happening, or, or maybe I should say the result of this salvation was the idea of something that they called shalom. Most of us have heard that word. Um, and the reason I want to identify it, it's not in the text at all, but I, I'm going to use it for one of the main points today. And so when I use that, I want you to be able to have all of this packed into that one word, if that, if that makes sense. And the idea of shalom, it goes, goes much deeper than when we think of peace, oftentimes what we think of is the absence of, of war, or the absence of conflict. And that's, that's not a bad thing, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but, but still inside of that, if that's all peace is, then you can still have the presence of things like indifference and apathy. Okay? And so what, what shalom was, and, and the ideas of, of, of Judaism, was the idea that all of life, not just, not just me and you, but, but, but the systems that governed us, the rulers that governed us, the, all of creation, all of life worked together for the harmony of all of life. In other words, if there is a system set up that we all are privileged and benefit from, but in some form or fashion, others don't benefit from, maybe they're oppressed, maybe they're poor because of that system, that is not shalom. In shalom, everybody, and, and, and the picture that the, that the ancients used to use with this is more like a fabric and all different parts of society, systems, people, creation, all, all of those were, were kind of blended together uh, to create this strong, beautiful fabric. And when those systems began to unravel, the fabric lost its strength, it lost its beauty. They, they called that unraveling uh, chaos. And shalom is the opposite, or chaos is the, is the opposite of shalom. And so the, the idea is that this, this salvation, this, this universal salvation was coming to create this or bring us back to this state of universal shalom. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and so uh, we'll, get, we'll get to the two points. Um, oftentimes when we, we approach this part of Jonah, Jonah chapter 3, the, the typical thought process or, or picture that is in our mind, uh, whether that's influenced by VeggieTales or Flannel Graph, I'm not sure, is that um, at some point, Jonah is vomited onto the shore of Nineveh by this well. He gets up in, in fish puke and makes his way to Nineveh and does his deal. Uh, the problem with that is, is kind of twofold. Um, one, that's, that's not what the scriptures say. 
Um, two, that, that kind of goes against the Jewish idea of creation and the Jewish idea of renewal and redemption. Okay? And so what, what the scriptures do, especially if you go back to the ancient Judean texts in the book of Jonah is between what we call the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is this, this, this decent space. As if to say, we're going to start over. Okay? And when the Jews would tell a story of redemption and restoration specifically, their stories didn't work like ours. They, were, they weren't linear. They weren't beginning, middle, end. Or what, and, you know, the middle was what, whatever. If you're a good story, it was the climax or whatever, and then you, you ended it. That's not how they worked. Rather, their stories, they were uh, beginning, middle, new beginning. And this is kind of what's going on with... Uh, the story in, in Jonah. It's, it's almost like, um, especially if you read the first couple verses in chapter 3 and the first couple verses in chapter 1, they're pretty parallel, except God's uh, command to Jonah is tweaked a little bit. And in part, in, in chapter 3, Jonah actually obeys chapter 1. He doesn't. But if you read those, they're very similar. It's almost like God is saying, just because you disobeyed, we're not done yet. And I'm with you. And we're going to do this. And we're going to do this right. And so we're going to start over. But we're going to do this. This also fits into our idea that Jonah, the book of Jonah, uh, not, not the actual historical figure, but the book of Jonah itself is a parable written to uh, post-exilic Judea, where they have just recently been, to, to use more metaphors, they have just recently been vomited back onto the land of Israel by the beast of Babylon. It's almost like God is using this to tell them, just like Jonah, I'm not done with you. In fact, I'm with you. And I was with you when you were in the, ba- you were in the belly of the beast. And I'm with you still. And your call to be major players and shapers and storytellers of this universal shalom has not changed. So, in other words, cut, let's do this again. And that's kind of the picture that we have as we're going in to chapter 3. Now, be- before we launch into chapter 3, I want to give you, go ahead and give you my two main points in case, one, uh, I lose you. Um, you can try to tie it to that because we're going to be information rich today. Two, if I bore you and you fall asleep, whenever you wake up, you can think he's surely talking about one of these two. So this is what we're going to do. Okay? The first point is, is this. The scope... And I'll, I'll say it a couple times and slow and then explain them a little bit. The scope of God's universal salvation, the scope of God's universal salvation outreaches the scope of his particular election. For those who don't know that term, uh, the, the term election is, and you know, there's always these great wars that have been going on in, in uh, Christianity. Personally, I think they both missed the point. But there's this idea that um, God chooses some to be saved and some to, to uh, well, go to hell, I guess. And, and that's just how election works. That's very incongruent with the way the Old Testament uses it. Um, and I think what Jonah shows us is that his, his plan for universal salvation is stronger and goes far beyond this idea of particular election. It's point one. Point two is that true repentance happens when we allow God's vision. True repentance happens when we allow God's vision for shalom 
to critique our lives. True repentance happens when we allow God's vision of shalom to critique our lives and we respond accordingly. In other words, repentance is much more than this small little confessional thing. It might include that. It's more than tweaking a couple things here and there in our lives. But it's, but it's to allow everything that our lives touch. It's everything, the way, the way we act, the way we, we play life. It's to allow all of it, all of it, to be critiqued by this vision God has for universal shalom. And not stand paralyzed to it, but to respond accordingly. Let's go. 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out to it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed. Just a few things on that before we go on. First of all, one of the differences between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God's command to Jonah has been tweaked. A little bit. In verse 1, or in in chapter 1, he says, call out against Nineveh. In chapter 2, he says, call out to Nineveh. As if there might be a double meaning in this whole idea of being overthrown. As if maybe God is up to more than what Jonah suspects. Now, what chapter 1 tells us is we know that God is wanting to, in some form or fashion, destroy what is known of the Ninevites because, according to chapter 1, the evil of the Ninevites has come before him. Now, we don't have to look far to know what this evil is. We can look through history, or we can also go to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum is a prophecy against Nineveh. And probably the most descriptive phrase used to describe Nineveh in the book of Nahum is a lion's den. And it says in that book, it uses language like the lion would go out and tear its prey to make sure the lion, the lioness, and the cubs were fed. Another another theologian had said that the way you define the lion's den, it it is the place where injustice was bred and where it would go out from. And so it would create systems that would make sure that the privileged of Nineveh were fed, were thriving, were doing what they needed to do. But it would oppress and marginalize and destroy others. And God was tired of this system. He was tired of this way of ruling. And so he tells Jonah in chapter 1, their evil has come to me Go out and preach against them. It goes on to say that Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. I think 
I think the word great there has more to do with just the size of the city or its ruling ability. But I think, because remember, this is a parable to the Jews. And I think this whole chapter is kind of a, not a shaming mechanism, if you will, but more of like we see in the New Testament where he's going to use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous, but almost an indictment. And he's telling the Jews who, who, who inside of them, for some reason, even though they've been, they've been exiled and they've been destroyed in war, they still have this nationalistic pride about them. And by using the word great, I think he's saying these Ninevites that you hate, that birth injustice, they're mine too. And I'm with them. And I love them. And I'm going to give them a shot. And I'm going to give them a chance. In fact, if you go to Isaiah 19, I'm, we're not going to go there to 1925, I think it is. I think that kind of confirms that. And then he goes on and he says, which sounds a lot like chapter 1. Jonah cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, that word overthrown has two meanings in scripture. One, that word is often used with cities like uh, Babylon, Sodom and Gomorrah, Edom. The idea of, of destruction. But the word also means to reform. And if we go in the line of Augustine, Augustine says, I don't think in this instance that God is interested in overturning stones. I think he's interested in overturning hearts. And I think that fits quite well with the context of this chapter, especially if we know where we're going in this chapter. That God is saying two things. Now, now Jonah, is, he's too nationalistic. He's too, he wants these people destroyed, Rightly. But I think what God is saying is he's saying to Jonah and he's saying to the Jews is I'm going to destroy the systems. I'm going to devour them. I'm not going to let the injustice continue to reign. But I love these people. And I love them just like I do the Jews, like I love you. And they're mine. And I'm going to go after their heart and I'm going to go after their soul. And I'm going to give them a chance before I destroy the systems that they've used to oppress others. And we know according to history that the Ninevites are indeed, the Assyrian uh, Empire, they, they are indeed destroyed by the, by the Babylonians. But I think before that happens, God is saying, I want to overturn some hearts. I think he's saying, Jonah, Jews, Judea, quit boxing me in. Quit limiting me to your understanding of election. Quit limiting me to your understanding of salvation. Quit limiting me to the way you think I should work. If you remember the last three weeks, we've said that we think the main question or the main question that, that Jonah, the book of Jonah is answering is, can God still be good when he responds or when he works outside of his people's interpretation of him? I think what he's telling Jonah what he's telling the Jews is that my universal salvation far outreaches my particular election. And I've not invited you to figure that out, to systematize it, to lock me in, and to lock other people in or out. But I am for the people. And I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to save them. And you can be part of this 
or you can miss it. C.S. Lewis writes this. It's, it's quite a lengthy quote. Here in the West, and you know this, this idea of salvation, we've just, we've, and we do this to everything. We quantify everything, don't we? We just need to manage it. We need to be able to put people in categories. You're saved. You're not saved. You're, you're whatever. And we can do it for more than just salvation. But I think when you read the history of salvation, it is something so thick and so glorious and so rich and has so much texture to it that, that we really damn the whole notion of it when, when we try to box in what God might be doing, especially if we begin to understand what the idea of redemption and renewal is. C.S. Lewis says it this way in, in trying to, he fits it into the narrative of the last battle from the Chronicles of Narnia. Listen to this. It says, Then I fell at his feet and thought, Surely this is the hour of death. For Aslan, the lion, who is worthy of all honor, will know that I have served Tosh all my days and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to live and not to have seen him at all. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am not your son, but I am the servant of Tosh. And he answered, Child, all the service that you have done to Tosh, I account as service done to me. Then by reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one and said, Lord, is it then true, as the ape said, that you and Tosh are one? And the lion growled so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me and said, it is false. Not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take unto myself the good services which you have done for him. For I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can even be done to me. And none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tosh and keep his oath in good for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he doesn't know it. And it is I who reward him. And if any man do cruelty in my name, then though he says the name of Aslan, it is Tosh whom he serves, and by Tosh his deed is accepted. Do you understand, child? And I said, Lord, you know how much I understand. But I said also, for the truth constrained me. Yet I have been seeking Tosh all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless your desire had been for me, you would not have sought so long and so truly. For all find what they truly seek. I think this is C.S. Lewis's way to use another C.S. Lewis-ism. Is that we can't really understand this whole idea of choice and time until we've lived beyond them. But God is doing something so great and so powerful and so beautiful and so rich and so deep. And his call to us is not come understand it, but come join it. And I'm going to do things that don't make sense and they're going to break your box and they're not going to fit in. But know that my scope for universal salvation outreaches my scope for particular election. And I think this is the message that Jews had to hear that for so long they hoped was not true. It goes on. It says, And the people of Nineveh believed God 
And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Another indictment on the people of Judea. Because if anybody's supposed to repent, it's the Jews. They have a whole history of learning what it means to repent. But what the the writer of Jonah is saying, the Ninevites, these, these evil, unjust, unjust people have figured something out that you have been instructed in for thousands of years. And they move far beyond the idea of just a simple confession. But it says they put on sackcloth, the, the clothes of the slave, the clothes that only the impoverished could wear. They put on sackcloth as if to say, my true spirit, my true soul is impoverished before the glory of God. And we will not try to fake it. But we will stand here humbled, begging for your mercy and your forgiveness. And then here's what's, what's ironic is, and I, again, I think this is a little bit of an indictment on, on Israel. Because Israel, if you look at their history, there's a lot of blame. She made me eat the apple. Right? All the way back to the garden. And you just work your way through. And the Israelites are constantly blaming people for the reason they did what they did. In, in the wilderness, it was Aaron who built the altar. We couldn't, the, the cow. We couldn't help. But here, it's not the king who leads them into repentance at first, is it? Rather, this is a ground-up movement. It's the people get it first. And their hearts are torn. And whether the king leads them there or not, they don't care. But they have caught a glimpse of God's glory and they stand in repentance. And then it says that the king, this evil, wicked, unjust king, gets word. And he stands up. That's not the position of a king. See, a king, when his subjects come before him, he stays on his throne as to make sure you know that you're other than him. That you're not as royal as him. That you're different from him. But this king stands up and comes down as if to say, you and I are one. And I am with you in this repentance. I stand in solidarity with you. Because in our nakedness, and our poverty before God, we are one. But the king takes it a step further. He doesn't just put on sackcloth, which he does, but it says he sits in ashes. He claims a new throne, in other words. He recognizes that the way that I have ruled before has been from power, from superiority, from pride, for self. But now he sits on a throne of dust and ash. As if to say that the way that I will rule from here on out will always be informed by repentance. It's not enough to stand before you and say, I'm sorry. But I will take actions and say that everything I do from here on out as a king will be with you and from the place of repentance. And then it goes on, and here's where the text, in my opinion, gets pretty thick. Picking up in verse 7, he says, And he issued a proclamation. Now the king... He takes that leadership authority. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor 
herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. The Ninevites start off by believing. They confess. It's the whole gamut of repentance. Then they take on the posture of one who is impoverished in soul before God. But they don't allow it to end there. In fact, it's like they allow the way they live to be critiqued by God's vision of shalom. The king makes two decrees. The second one, he says, and we'll put it first, is let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. In other words, if we're really going to fall into this repentance thing, if we're really going to do this deal then it's time to turn inward. It's time to look in the mirror and see how our everyday personal lives, choices we make, inflict some sort of violence or oppression on others. And it's time to let it go. It's time to stop it. Yeah, but what about the convenience? And it's time to stop it. That one we all theoretically get. We need to quit being evil to people. Right? But then the, the, the one that seems to evade us so often, and I don't know if it's because of where we live or the way we think, but he says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock t- taste anything. Let them not feed or drink or eat. In the ancient world, beast, herd, flock, and man are the symbols for ancient economy. The king of Nineveh just admitted that I recognize that we have created systems that make us privileged, that make us wealthy, that make us thrive, that cause others to be oppressed, marginalized, and poor. And he basically says, don't, he says, don't feed them. In other words, let's cut the systems off. Because it's not the way God's vision of shalom works. And I know, I know that that sounds all liberal to say. But if you look through the Old Testament, these are the systems God created. The Jubilee. How about in Ruth, where he tells the wealthy people who own the land? He says, all this stuff that you worked really hard for, It's not all yours. In fact, when you go harvest it, leave some out there for the poor to take for free. To the illegal, the immigrant, he says, bring them in your home. Because they're mine. They're mine. And it's not enough to say you're sorry. It's not enough for you to stop doing the convenient things. But if we are really going to be a people who allow God's shalom, God's vision of shalom to critique our lives, then it's got to critique the systems that we play into. It's got to critique 
the systems that we have allowed ourselves to be privileged and ignored those who have not. And that's a really hard and heavy thing to do. Maybe, maybe this is why when Jesus was asked about Christianity or about following him, he didn't say, well, you know, you just got to say you're sorry and you go to church and you put some money in the bucket, though, like that. Um, but he said, you got to carry your cross. Because, see, Jesus is the physical embodiment of God's shalom. And his very life critiqued not only the people, but the systems that he was around. And that critiquing didn't win him any favors. In fact, it took him to the cross. And he says about that, now you carry yours. If you want to be players in this, you got to, first of all, not box me into whatever systematic doctrine you think I'm working within for your favor. But you got to understand that my plan of salvation, global, universal salvation, far outstretches any sort of particular election I have. If you are one of mine, if you are a cross-bearer, a Christ-follower, and the Jews had to have felt this heavy, because the Ninevites are the examples. He says, you've got to allow my vision of shalom to critique the very lives you live. And then you have to respond accordingly. That's repentance. Now, I didn't know how to close today because I know that's a pretty joyful message. I don't have a list of here's things to do. But ironically enough, neither did the Ninevites. We don't hear any instructions from Jonah. And you got to do this. In fact, Jonah is very limited on what he says. But I think God has the one with the beautiful picture of Shalom. And I think if we listen, he'll begin to talk. And so what I want to do, if the band will go ahead and come up, I want to lead us in a liturgy of repentance. Where are the areas that I've boxed you in and I've not been a player in this universal salvation that you are wanting to bring to all humanity? Maybe that's what you think about. Would you all stand? When our songs have ignored the pain of your broken body on earth, and when our services have been more of an escape for us than good news to the poor, when we praise you with our lips but deny you with our finances, when our instruments are louder than our cries for justice, when we fail to learn from the sacrificial worship of brothers and sisters across the world, when our lives deny the words on our lips and our affections are turned inward. Living God, as we enter into worship and communion, draw us near to your heart. We want you to inhabit these praises because we love being your people. Thank you for allowing us to worship you in community, with our family, with the global church this morning. Thank you for being our God and making us your people. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.